0: The Plumley Pod, episode 38.
1: Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education,
0: The Plumley Pod. Hello, and welcome to The Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley. Bet you didn't guess that. But you might not guess who my special guest is this week. I have Mr. Simon Day returning. He is, of course, the co-author of the wonderful The TV Delusion. And we have got some fascinating topics to talk with you about this morning. Simon, how are you?
1: Very well, thanks, Sarah. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be back again. Fourth time. That's a bit of a record, probably.
0: Is Indeed, you're actually right. It's a total record. And interestingly enough, our last podcast was so good. It was getting a bit of grief, a bit of jip online, which is interesting. I'm not really online because I'm censored and banned because obviously I tell the truth. Our last episode, this was um, episode 34, my beautiful people. If you haven't listened to episode 34, the Plumly pod, go listen. This is the one that got really properly censored online. And there were some attacks on book, apparently. I have heard rumors of and you should go listen to it because we talked about some really, really fascinating stuff. Yeah, don't miss it. It's one that was kind of under-listened to, and I blame fake book censorship for that. But I'm very glad. I'm very proud, actually. What are we going for today, Simon?
1: Yeah, so, so this time, I thought we'd talk about medical screening and the, all the problems and everything associated with that. And once again, most of the research I'm going to present here comes from Joanna Vandalia. And it's based around the book, The Patient Paradox by Margaret McCartney, which I believe you've read as well.
0: I have. In fact, I bought the book for Joe because I read it and it changed my life. It changed my opinions on um, medicine forever. And I thought, oh, Joe has got to read this. So I literally sent her a copy.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of books which be once a revelations about how the medical industry works in general and that this is Got to be one of them up there. For me, it's also the Ben Goldacre book, which we discussed last time. But I guess... Bad science was that. Bad science. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah.
0: Shall I just read the blurb on the back of this patient paradox before you get rolling, just so people have a general idea of what the hell this book's about and why they should read it? Please do. So this is The Patient Paradox by Margaret McCartney. She is or was a GP in Scotland. So in, if you think, take United Kingdom, she's a general practitioner. If you're not from the UK, it's like an MD, a medical doctor. right? She's a doctor, a real doctor, a medical doctor. And the blurb on the back of her amazing book, which you should definitely read, says, Welcome to the world of sexed-up medicine, where patients have been turned into customers and clinics and waiting rooms are jammed with healthy people lured in to have their blood pressure taken and cholesterol, smear test, bowel or breast screening done. In the world of sexed-up medicine, pharmaceutical companies gloss over research they don't like, and charities often use dubious science and dodgy PR to raise awareness of their disease, leaving a legacy of misinformation in their wake. Isn't that a word we've heard a lot of lately? Our obsession with screening swallows up the time of NHS staff, and the money of healthy people who pays thousands to private companies for tests they don't need. Meanwhile, the truly sick are left to wrestle with disjointed services and confusing options. Explaining the truth behind the screening statistics and investigating the evidence behind the hype, Margaret McCartney, an award winning writer and doctor, argues that this patient paradox, too much testing of well people and not enough care for the sick, worsens health inequalities and drains professionalism, harming both those who need treatment and those who don't.
1: Yeah, certainly chilling stuff. Yeah, obviously, the idea is here, is, as you said, is the idea that the unscrupulous activities of a big farmer and charities are advertising their services and their products and their diseases to healthy people who then become lifelong customers.
0: Yeah, for me, the charities is a really, sort of, some people expect it from big pharma. It's a big problem of the biggest businesses, biggest industries in the world, financially speaking. But charities... Like They have a softer, cuddly side. They're benign, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean,
1: these, these are things which we traditionally associate with helping people and that kind of thing. We, we like to give our money to them because we make ourselves feel better and we feel we're doing good. But often, some charities are probably pretty good and they probably do help people. Like, I'm not saying that all of them are tarred with the same brush. But in many cases, cancer charities, for one, I think they're just basically taking the money and perpetuating the disease.
0: Well, they haven't done a lot in the last hundred years in terms of treatment options. I mean, if you look at the developments in this is a bit of a cliche amongst people like us, but if you look at the developments in aviation in the last hundred years, and then you look at the developments in cancer treatment, aviation has gone from a a dude, you know, flapping some wings almost to um, (laughs) these fantastic, you know, Concords, jumbo jets, amazing fighter planes, and cancer, your options are you can. Take poison, chemotherapy. We'll try and poison the disease before it poisons you. You've got irradiation, which we know quite a lot about, and we've got, we'll cut it out of you, surgery. Doesn't really seem to be many more options on top of that, unless I am mistaken.
1: Yeah, pretty um basic, really, almost like caveman. in its Crude,
0: uh, crude. Yeah,
1: exactly. And
0: yet they've had all the funding, and they've had yeah. the same 100 years, perhaps a bit less than 100, but they've had a, a very similar timescale to aviation. And if you look at the development in one and the improvement and the lack of development in the other, isn't that suspicious in and of itself?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely smacks of the fact that they don't really want to succeed. And I'm not saying that all of them who are involved in it will have that in their minds. Agreed. A lot of people, when they're involved in these things, they just get caught up in the ride and they kind of do what they're told and plod along, not really realising the big picture that they're a part of unwittingly. So it's not that all these people are complicit, of course. Many just don't know what's going on, true with all walks of life, really.
0: Yeah, isn't it? I was just thinking the same thing. On that note, let's dive right into the patient paradox.
1: Yeah, so I was going to kick off with an example that Margaret uses in her book to give a real-life example of quite how this kind of thing works. So she talks about Jade Goody, who some people will remember as being a Big Brother reality TV personality, it says here. Now, I don't know anything about Jade Goody. I don't know anything about her situation. Some people will tell you that she never had cancer. It's all fake, and I, I don't know anything about that. So I'll just keep an open mind. So I don't want to make any personal judgments about her in this fight. It's more how this is an illustration of the, of the wider topic. So apparently she died of cervical cancer in 2009. And on the back of this, there was a massive rise in the number of women attending smear tests. So like a massive jump in it. And David Cameron, who at that time wasn't prime minister, but as we all know, went on to become prime minister, he allegedly said that her legacy will be to save the lives of more young women in the future. And I I just look at the phraseology of that and it struck me as if it was a bit of an advertisement, a tagline you might get in an advert. It's almost like this whole situation had been created as an advert for increased smear testing and screening. And I thought to myself, how can we tell that this story is an advert masquerading as a news story? Well, one way is when the story is way bigger than it should have been. So in this particular case, one person has died of cancer, which we're told that one in two people will get cancer before before they die. So one person dying of cancer isn't exactly a noteworthy thing. And yet, somehow, this story seemed to fill the, the TV and newspapers for weeks on end. Now, I was sort of reminded there are various other examples of this. I was reminded of it about a year ago. There was an example, I can't remember the details now. There's a story of a girl who was allegedly murdered by a policeman, supposedly. And someone being murdered isn't a big story. And yet, this filled the TV and the newspapers for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. Another example, of course, is the Madeleine McCann thing which still rumbles through the newspapers and TV today. And it's, God knows how long ago it was now, probably 15 years ago, at a rough estimate. So when you get these stories that become kind of larger than life, you kind of, in the back of your mind, I think you kind of have a suspicion maybe that the reason is something else other than just simply to tell you a story.
0: With you on that, 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. It's sniffy, isn't it? We have to remember that nothing gets into the public domain as in to the masses, unless they want it to, unless the powers that shouldn't be want it to. You don't see things that you shouldn't see, especially if you're in the mainstream areas like BBC Lies 24, Sky News, Fox News, CNN, Cartoon News Network, and MSNBC. <laughs> I always mix those two up. But anyway, you get the idea that the what I call the fake news media, if you see it there, it's because you're meant to see it. And that should ring alarm bells straight away, whatever it is, right?
1: Yeah, and to go off on a tangent a little bit briefly here, This is another thing that in the truth movement, we found ourselves caught up with seven or eight years ago, that we'd see something released on the news and it looked like they'd given the game away, either with some of these hoaxes or whatever, or false flag events or whatever. And we think, oh, gleefully, oh, we've caught them this time. We've got them. We've caught them out. But it's as you said, if they want that information to come out, otherwise they wouldn't have let it out. These media outlets are completely controlled. Even most of the so-called alternative ones are also controlled and nothing appears there unless they want you to see it. So and a great example if you see it and run with jabs. it, yeah, you're part of an agenda. You're, you're making yourself part of the agenda by running with their story. What were you going to say about the convict jabs?
0: Yeah, thank you. Here we are in February 2023. And as early as April, May 2020, so-called conspiracy theorists, tinfoil hatters or whatever, were bleating about the dangers of the jabs that may or may not be found to help save us from, quote-unquote, the plague. Well, it was all set up, and many people have seen COVID for what it is. And But what they don't realise is the whole of the medical establishment, pretty much, has been set up this way and has been operating this way all along. This book that we're digging into today, it's not a new book. This is definitely pre-plandemic, pre-scandemic.
1: Ten years ago, I'm I think. just
0: pulling up the date now because... I've got a copy here, yeah, 2012. So this yep. is 2012, this book was originally written. So this is we're eight years before the scandemic here, people. And yet this lady, this doctor, is going to talk about many of the same devices that were literally played out on us during what I call the scandemic, the pandemic years. And we've got to be really switched on to how these people operate because a lot of it's rinse and repeat, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. The same patterns over and over again. And once you see the pattern, you can't unsee it, right?
0: brilliant
1: yeah exactly let's go i want to go back to focus on a bit of the book and talk a bit about the screening process for the smear test and how it's supposed to work allegedly they say that it's based on this so-called detection of alleged pre-cancer cells so here's the first i mean when i look at that I, i look for obvious red flags as soon as i can now in this particular case it's the word pre, isn't it? So you've got their simple prefix, P-R-E. What does it really mean, right? All it means is something that happens before something. So A happens and then later B happens. And yet here, they seem to imply that there's a causal link between this. So they're implying that there's a causal link between the precancer cells and cancer. But in fact, This is just indicated by the word pre, which just means it's before it. So to suggest that something that happens before something must be a cause of that second thing. It's an example of the logical fallacy known as post hoc, ergo, propter hoc. Now it sounds like a fancy name, but post hoc just means after this. Ergo, most people will know that. It means therefore. Propter hoc means because of this. So it's the false assumption that something that if an event A occurs before event B then event A must be a cause of event B. And they tell you that they've used this logical fallacy right in the name of these cells pre cancer it's kind of a giveaway right? And anyone who's read our book will know that we're of the opinion that logical fallacies lie at the heart of all religions be they vaccine fundamentalism classic religions like Christianity, or whatever, branch cavidianism, the TVism, where the TV becomes a god, all of these kind of things. And so, as soon as you see a logical fallacy like this in, place, in plain sight, you have to be on your guard that something funny may be going on here. I think it's a kind of a lesson for you can apply anywhere. So, let me just carry on a little bit more then. So, I think one of the problems here is that many people don't understand. The nature of causality what what does if I say a causes b what does that even mean and it turns out there's at least as you probably imagine there's two different definitions of causality and they're kind of like the definitions of truth in the first couple of chapters of our book so the first one is causal a uh, constructivist causality and that is where if you say that a causes B, A causes B if an authority tells you that A causes B. A bit like constructivist truth where if someone tells you something true, it's true because they say it is basically. So it's all to do with authority. And then the second definition is more to do with more of a scientific one. But even this has problems in it as well. Let me try and explain. So the scientific definition says you need three things in order for causality to be there. You need the A event happening before the B event, so the supposed cause happening before the effect. You can't have A causing B if B happens first, right? A has to happen first, but that isn't sufficient, right? The second thing is that you need to have it such that every time A happens, B happens, okay? And this is kind of, I don't know what you call that, it just means that, if A happened a lot and B happened rarely, the causal link would be weak, wouldn't it? Because a lot of times it wouldn't make it happen. Though those two things are kind of obvious, I think. But the it's the last one, the third pillar, if you like, of causality, which is a difficult one. And that is that there must be a recognized mechanism by which A could affect B. Now, usually this become this is down to a scientific mechanism. And obviously, as we know, a lot of, science is just a religion in itself. So the fact that there's an accepted mechanism doesn't really mean that much. So even this so-called scientific definition has got, got problems with it. And so that, that's the first thing about causality. And I don't think many people really understand that. I think they, they think they're following some science, but in fact, they're just following the constructivist idea of it. And then that brings us on to the second thing about causality is there's two different categories of it. There's what's called a sufficient condition, which means that if A happens and it's a sufficient condition for B, then B will always happen. And this is called modus ponens, which it has the it gives you the idea of dependency. And the other category is necessary condition. And what this means is that if A in order for B to happen, A must have happened first. But other factors must come into play. This is often called modus tollens, which means to to lift. So going back to these pre-cancer cells, which is why I was going on about all this stuff. First of all, you've got the problems with the logical fallacy. And then you've got the problem about is it a sufficient condition or a necessary condition? Even if you do accept that there's some kind of causal relationship, is it a sufficient condition or, or a necessary condition? And all these things, of course, are unknown and they freely admit they're unknown as well so it's not just me saying they're unknown their own literature says they're unknown so the upshot is that there's no evidence at all that the presence of these pre-cancerous cells allegedly is either a sufficient condition or a necessary condition for cancer in later life and most of people who get caught up by the screening process would never actually go on to get cancer and this smear test isn't the only example of this, breast screening, is similar as well. Many women end up getting a mastectomy following a diagnosis of DCIS, which is, I like to write this one down, ductal carcinoma in situ. And they end up getting this treatment for no reason. And this condition wasn't picked up before the screening process was introduced and is normally completely harmless and doesn't necessarily precede cancer in any way.
0: It should be shocking, but I'm not shocked. I'm sure there are people listening to this who are shocked, but obviously I've read the same book and I've read other books as well. And I actually have some direct personal experience. Are you going to dig some more into the Smith tests or not? I don't know what's coming next. If you're not, I've got something to say. And if you have, I'll wait.
1: (laughs) No, you you go ahead.
0: It's just to say that I have a direct personal experience of this, which is why this book, The Patient Paradox by Margaret McCartney, it's The Patient Paradox Why Sexed-Up Medicine is Bad for Your Health, blew my mind. Basically about seven or eight years ago, I think it was about eight years ago, I had a positive smear test, but it was a, they were making out that it was like a severely positive test. And hmm, I was a bit perplexed because I didn't see, like I didn't feel poorly. I was an extremely fit, and I'm talking like international assistant referee for football fit. I'm not just talking, you know, casual gym enthusiast. I was seriously fit and I felt healthy. I looked healthy. I was healthy. So I didn't understand why not only did I have a positive test, but they were desperate to get me to go to hospital for some biopsies, right? Now, I hadn't really had any experience of hospitals apart from injuries. <laughs> you know, I'm a sportswoman, so I'd, you know, bumps and bruises and a bit of scar tissue and soft tissue damage and x-rays for this and x-rays for that over the years for things where you get like hit by a cricket ball or hit by a hockey stick, obvious things. So I didn't really have much experience of any other kind of illness or hospital stay for any reason. So hmm, I wasn't terribly happy about it. So I started to research a little bit about smear tests and and cervical cancer on the internet, although I wasn't coming at it from the point of view of somebody who was awake or awakening or from a, a truth of perspective. I was just not really sure what even some of the things in these letters even meant. Anyway, I got serious letters stuffed through my letterbox because I hadn't responded in time and I had to come to the hospital for these biopsies and yada. Eventually, the fear-mongering got me to go for these tests. So I went to the consultant gynecologist at Macclesfield Hospital in the Northwest, in the United Kingdom Macclesfield Hospital, the consultant gynecologist there. And I sat there in the waiting room. And I'll be honest with you, my primary concern, i as a football referee, my primary concern was missing half of the season for some operation or recovery from some operation. I couldn't, in, in my head, I couldn't afford to do that. I was being promoted. I was on the up and up. I was, I'd been selected to represent England in Russia as an assistant referee and stuff. I was like, no, sorry, like this better be good. So I sat there with this consultant and she gave me kind of a, I don't want to say a sales pitch because that sounds too rude, but she gave me a bit of a sort of, I don't know, a kind of a, a glossy Overview of what was going on here with these biopsies and what the situation exactly was with my positive smear test and why it was severe and not just a, any old positive and possibly, let's face it, a false positive, right? At no point did she say it could be a false positive, even though obviously it could be. So I wasn't very happy about that because I knew that there was a percentage of positives that were false positive in the first place. And that would be the best outcome, wouldn't it? Okay, you're positive, but it's a false positive. So hey, there's nothing wrong. You're fine. You can relax. And the biopsies would prove or disprove that, presumably. That wasn't this kind of the attitude or the flavor or the mood that I was sensing in this consultation room. So I sat there, bearing in mind, this is a consultant. We're not just talking about some nurse here, and that's not being disrespectful to nurses. This is someone supposedly at the top of her profession. So she said to me that the treatment proposed is some sort of laser treatment where they laser away the cells if I agreed to the operation. So the biopsies was the investigation to find out whether or not I did have cervical cancer. So supposedly definitively, although she was a bit sketchy on that, then the operation would be some sort of laser or some sort of loop thing where they basically remove the dodgy cells, the supposedly cancerous cells from your cervix. And then you have a period of recovery. And presumably that would be a bit longer for me because I was doing a running sport, a very physically demanding sport, such as football refereeing. Anyway, I said to her, can I look at some studies on this? I'd like to see what percentage of people who don't have this operation, what are their outcomes? What percentage of people? Who is it? How many people is this successful for? She didn't know anything she said to me, Google it. When I asked for the studies, what could I read and research, the medical studies? She said, oh, Google it. Wow. And this is the top consultant at my then local hospital, Backersfield. And I was, obviously, I was pretty naive then because I, I, was, I was stunned by that, Simon. I was completely gutted. Yeah, I just couldn't believe that somebody who's at the top, a consultant, I mean, I'm a maths teacher, right? So she's way higher up than me as a consultant gynecologist and she's telling me to google it something that she does every she does these operations and the biopsies nearly every single day or probably five days a week because she's a consultant i bet she doesn't work weekends right but but (laughs) she's doing this stuff every day she can't name me one study she can't name me one study about the efficacy or otherwise of this treatment and of this operation that she's proposing and i was i felt sick because obviously i was into 9-11 7-7 and false flag terror and i'm learning all this stuff but i didn't expect medicine. I didn't expect my local doctor, my local hospital to be in on to be in on their own thing as well. I really was shocked. Anyway, I had these biopsies and I said to her, she sort of, she said to me, you're better off having the operation than not having it. And I'm like, what? We don't even know if I have cancer yet. This is what the biopsies are for. Anyway, I, she sort of bullied me in a way into agreeing to have the operation then and there. Anyway, I got really lucky because when she looked, the cells were too close to the bowel wall. So she was unable to perform the procedure because there was a massive risk of causing damage to the bowel. So just by pure luck of the position of these allegedly dodgy cells, she couldn't do that operation. And thank goodness, because wow. the biopsies on that day, she took six biopsies from my cervix. And I'm quite a tough girl. I've played elite sport. I dabbled with entry into the military. I'm no mad ass. Let's just put it like that. And it hurt. And not only did it hurt, they said I could go back to work that afternoon. I was in bed for seven days after these biopsies. I was in bed bleeding and feeling really unwell. I had to cancel a football match that I was supposed to be refereeing. And I rarely did that. No, Anyone who wants to be successful in football refereeing does not cry off from matches, believe me. And I was Mm. gutted. They lied to me. They told me I'd be fine that day. And I'm not being funny. I'm not kind of a marred girl. I'm not a girl that's not used to physical pain. Like I know that very, very well. Any elite sportsman knows that. A sportsman as well, of course. But I was really angry that their leaflets and their literature were lies. They were making out, obviously, best case scenario, you can go back to work that day. Yeah, maybe if you sit at a desk. But I tell you what, I wasn't even fit to sit at a desk for at least three to five days. So wow, I, was, I was fuming. Anyway, yeah. when the results of the biopsies came back, and they'd been reviewed not just by my consultant, but by a secondary consultant as well, a second person, whatever, who was qualified. They said, your cells are not cancerous. So despite my smear test coming back, not just positive, but like warning, warning, alarm, alarm, you've got to come in, have an operation, come in, have the biopsy. They came back completely clear, all six biopsies, all six completely clear. And then they said, here's the punchline, we recommend you have the operation anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: Yeah, that's for real.
1: And this is the thing. I mean, I don't believe the test works. I don't know what these tests are, but I don't believe they work. I don't think the, I don't necessarily believe the biopsy works either. So you know, you've got two things which are doubtful as to their value. And they're recommending you have a surgical procedure as, as on the back of these. You know, it's kind of crazy. And there's nothing wrong with you, right?
0: After the biopsies, they said I could go back to work that afternoon and I was ill in bed for seven days, had to cancel a refereeing fixture, which doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Not only that, imagine how long I'd be ill after the operation. I think they said three weeks. So imagine how much longer that would be based on half a day to a week. So three weeks to what? Three months? It's completely outrageous. Also, I sort of said to Tim, I said, well, hang on a minute. Why would I have an operation if I don't have cancer?
1: Yeah.
0: Why are they trying to persuade me to have invasive surgery when they admit there's no cancer? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, they've even admitted
1: it. They've even admitted that it's fake.
0: So that's when I started to read more about medicine.
1: Yeah.
0: I ditched the false flag terror books. I'm like, yeah, basically it's all fake, fine. And that's when I started looking into medicine. (laughs) And thank goodness I did, because look at what the next one that came along was medicine. Well, so-called medicine, wasn't it?
1: Well, this is the thing, you know, everyone says, oh, when did you wake up? What made you wake up? And all this kind of thing. But waking up is not an event. It's an ongoing process. And it probably will go on our entire lives, I suspect. And at each stage, we, we find ourselves shocked to see what new avenues of life the, these forces have crept that way into. For me, it was science, because I've always been a scientist since I was a kid. So... To find out that much of science was just a made-up religion kind of really shocked me to the core, you know? You know, it's one thing to investigate some false flag terror thing, but science is supposed to form the bedrock of our society, and here it is, tarnished, just like everything else for the most part. Not all of it. I mean, some science is genuine, right? But a lot of it isn't. I, I'm with you on the process. Yeah. You're yeah. right.
0: When did you wake up? I'm awake. No, you're not awake. You're awakening. Because I knew a load of stuff, but I didn't know about this. I went for those biopsies. I should never have gone, I should never even have gone for the smear test. But I went for the smear test, I went for the biopsies, because I still had a level of trust in something I should absolutely not have trusted, not have believed in. Because it's not, literally, the lead consultant couldn't name a single study based on the operations and the biopsies that she performs almost every single day. And I should just add here, that eight years on, so it's eight years since I was flagged as a potential cancer patient, Warning, warning, all these red letters from the hospital. You must go for these biopsies. You have cancer. All this garbage. I'm not dead because you can hear me. I'm still here. I am fit and well. I have had no medical. Since I stopped going for tests, I've had no problems. Now, I'm not telling anybody. I'm not telling anybody what to do. I'm just saying what I have done since I stopped going for tests and getting red letters from the hospital saying I'm dying through the door. I have a calmer life. I have a happier life, and I am fit and well. And it's been eight years, so I guess if I really did have cancer, I'd be dead by now. So, yeah, well, have that for an A/B tester. Huh?
1: Well, I've got a similar story to tell a little bit later. Obviously, not to do with smear tests, but of a similar nature. Um, <laughs> but let me just carry on back to this idea of these precancerous cells because I just want to add something. So, we've talked about these pre these alleged precancerous cells, and we've talked about the problems with causality surrounding that. Notion. and Of course, it brings me on uh, to see that this same pattern is applied elsewhere, isn't it? So, if you think of, say, a virus, okay, they, they claim they find a virus in you by looking at it, something under an electron microscope and looking at dots and claiming it's a virus. But these, there's no reason to suspect that these actually cause illness at all. And in fact, they freely admit that they find these dots in healthy people and in sick people which proves that they can't be the cause, or they can't be a sufficient cause of the illness, right? At the very best, it would have to be a necessary cause. But I don't think you can even, given that they're present in everyone, I don't think you can even demonstrate that because you would need to find an example of someone who didn't have them and analyze that person. If everyone's got them, you can't. So, I don't know, there's big problems. And, I just want to go back to the, just to change the subject slightly again, and go back to the book, if I may, because there was a quote from the book that caught my eye. It was about the breast cancer, the DCIS thing, which we'll remember is this ductal carcinoma in situ, which is basically cancer of the milk ducts in breasts. And anyway, the Margaret McCartney guides us to the case of a lady called Jane Flanders, who was diagnosed with this DCIS. And I'm going to quote from the book now, or uh, I'll paraphrase a little bit. The consequence of this diagnosis, that of the DCIS, has been two wide incisions, one partial mutilation, one reconstruction, five weeks of radiotherapy, and a year off work. I expect I've been classified as a screening success, yet everything about my experience tells me the opposite. Screening has caused me considerable and lasting harm. And that's the thing, you know, you end up with these procedures on the basis of nothing, basically, and, you know, it, it's causing people harm.
0: And that's the physical cost, but also there's the psychological yeah. cost, which Margaret McCartney does touch on in frequent places. And I, I experienced myself having all those red letters coming through the door, basically saying you're dying of cancer, you better get to hospital today or you're going to die. I mean, people might laugh now, especially if they're sort of awake to Big Pharma, but I wasn't fully awake. I was partially awake to Big Pharma at the time, but I wasn't fully. And they're scary. And that stress yeah. and the anxiety about reading about all this stuff that's going to happen to you or might happen to you—that's not good. And yes. what does that do to you? What does that—that that might even do physical harm to you, not just psychological harm to you. And this yeah, is never well, even. Where are the studies on that? Where
1: are the studies no, on the right. psychological harm? Well, more specifically, of course, what you've described is the exact description of a nocebo. Yes, as, and I refer your listeners to our last podcast where we go into this in a lot of detail. The thing is that they're telling you that this might happen can actually give rise to the symptoms of the thing that they're telling you you're going to get, even if you haven't got it. And that was and episode... there would be 34? 34, 34
0: guys. Yeah, episode 34. Thanks, Simon. That's placebo versus nocebo effect. Really interesting, Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, so let's not go back to that. Obviously, anyone who's interested in that can go and listen to that again. The important thing is that this information that we've just discussed about the problems with the screening tests isn't... Well, in my opinion, well, it definitely wasn't when Margaret wrote her book and probably isn't today. It isn't being communicated to the patient before the screening is commenced. And the same with other things. Well, same with the COVID tests. When you're given a COVID test, it isn't explained to you that the test is fake and that it could lead to a, if it comes out fake positive, it could lead to a nocebo effect. Same with the vaccine. They don't tell you that it could lead to. Do you mean the experimental gene clots?
0: therapy? I have a problem. Yeah, with well, calling if a that's vaccine. what you, if Sorry. that's what
1: you think it is, yeah,
0: <laughs> I can't call it. A, I don't know what it is, but I can't call it a vaccine because I know it's not one of those. Not based on the definition that we've had for freaking decades.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I normally just go with the word poison because. Oh, with you, poison. The, the, the idea of it being a gene therapy is just their narrative, and there's Agreed. no good. reason why their narrative. That's on the grassy
0: that. knoll, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the grassy knoll. Absolutely right.
0: Yes, yeah, we've got the two options: red or yeah. blue. We've got black yeah. or white. We've got yeah, you, it's if yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Once again, same, we don't get to think about anything else and all the other possibilities. It's just this. Exactly or that. the
1: same with uh, real virus or manufactured virus made in a lab in Wuhan. Right, oh. those are you two options. They're never giving you the option which is that it doesn't exist. And there it's is all no fake.
0: virus, like David Icke. There is no virus.
1: You're right. This is a classic grassy knoll. Just as I'm glad you picked up on that. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people, when they they think about these screening things, a lot of people say something along the lines of, if we can just save one person, then it would all have been worth it. But this this is not an aspect of thought. This is a propaganda tagline. And people recite this propaganda tagline pretending that they've thought about the matter for themselves. But of course, if you look at the big picture, it's easy to see the fallacy behind this. What happens if saving that one person causes 10 other people to die who would otherwise have been completely healthy. Is it still worth it then? Killing, ma- killing 10 maimed. to save one?
0: Maybe, yeah. it is, maybe it maims them. Maybe it stops yep. a dancer from being able to, ever able to dance again. Maybe it puts 20 people in a wheelchair so they have a very, very poor quality of life. Yeah. I love that you've brought that up, that if it even saves one life, it's worth it. It's dogma. That's just like 1984's I Must Work Harder.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I
0: must vote harder. I must work. You're bleating the line of the propagandists.
1: The yeah, exactly right. You've never yeah. thought
0: about it at all. You've never given even five minutes thought to it.
1: Yeah. So it's this idea of informed consent, isn't it? You can only consent to a certain procedure or elect to take a certain action if you're given the full information about that course of action. If you're only given half of it or a quarter of it, then there's no way you can have informed consent because you haven't been informed.
0: What, like not knowing the contents of the vial they're going to jab in your arm? Or your exactly, ass? yeah. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it's blank, intentionally blank. Yeah, but what's in it? Oh, well, no one knows. Oh, well, no informed consent. <laughs> what? <laughs> what?
1: And this is why when Convict came along, I don't, because this idea of, of people not being given the full information was already commonplace in the medical profession. I think when Convict came along and doctors weren't giving informed consent about how Convict is just the flu or a cold, and how the vaccine is dangerous. They were comfortable with not giving out that information because not giving out information had been standard practice for them for many, many years. In fact, it's been, I think it's been going on since the 70s and maybe before then. So I've got another quote from the book here. Even in the 1970s, the head of so-called epidemiology, which is the alleged study of the spread of disease, a guy called Archie Cole, Crane, probably, probably pronounced his name wrong. He said that never has there been less appeal to evidence and more to opinion than when the cervical screening procedure was discussed. And this is in the early 70s, like nearly 50, 50 odd years ago, this has been going on for now. You know, still many people haven't woken up to the enormity of what's going on here. And I, I think what happens is that screening tests have conditioned people to think very differently about disease they now believe that they could have a serious disease lurking in their body and yet have no symptoms at all. And this has led to the false idea of the asymptomatic carrier, which is one of the cornerstones, of course, of the Branch Covidian religious movement. Isn't um, it
0: just? Isn't so it just?
1: Another, got, exactly. I've got another quote from the book here. We've become accustomed to equating cancer with a death sentence. We think of cancer and the need for surgery, chemotherapy, and the need for writing of a will, I'm expecting death. The irony is that it's often the chemo that causes death. These are my words now. The irony is it's often the chemo that causes death, not the cancer. 95% of people who have chemo die within five years. And they die not of the cancer, but of the chemo. And this fact comes from the BMJ, the British Medical Journal. So they even admit it themselves that this has a very low that success rate.
0: just happened to my best friend's sister-in-law, my best friend's sister-in-law. So the wife of my best mate's brother has just died and he started having chemo about 18 months, two years ago. So she's one of those 95% statistics right now. It's funny, just as you were saying that, I wrote down how many people ever get to die of cancer, not with cancer, but of cancer, because most people who supposedly have cancer die of the treatment, but it's not classed as dying of the treatment for cancer. It's classed as dying of cancer. But it's not the case. How many people actually get to die of cancer? And they won't let us A-B test it because apparently it's unethical. Well, I tell you what, I volunteer. In fact, I did, didn't I? Yeah. I, did, I didn't take the treatment and I'm still alive, alive and kicking and not sick. Um, yeah. Just one example. But I really genuinely wonder. I don't mean that in a nasty way. I want to know how many people ever actually die of cancer rather than cancer treatment.
1: Yeah, and it reminds me of the statistic about people dying with COVID as opposed to of COVID. So you fall off a ladder, you go for it, you have a PCR test and you've got a snuffle, therefore you've got COVID and you're dead because you fell off the ladder.
0: Some guy in the States got shot and it went down as COVID. He actually died of gunshot wounds, but because there was COVID on the death certificate, it was classed as COVID-19 death. That was real. That was actually real. Yeah. But beyond bonkers. And just want to go back to that statement you made about the people who bleat, if it saves even one life, it was worth it for all of us going through the tests and the biopsies and the pain and the missed days of work and the stress and the anxiety. Well, hang on a second. How many would people would stick by that if they knew beforehand that they were going to be the one who dies of it? Let's say exactly. this is a minority report kind of, the movie minority report kind of situation where we have full knowledge of exactly what is going to happen. If I knew I was the one that was going to die and it was going to save these hundred people's lives, yeah, obviously, I want to be the hero and say, yes, I would do it. I would sacrifice my life for these others. In reality, God, no, I wouldn't stop them. Absolutely not. Bugger them. Or any that's because you know an American movie, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's kind of, you know, straight to the heart of the matter that, oh, if it saves even one life, that's generic. That's typical communism, is it? That's out there. That's Marxism. It's communists. It's Oh, if it saves, what about your life? Let's talk on an individual level. If you knew that one in 800 people were going to die of the COVID-1984 shock, would you still take it? What about if we knew one in 300 were going to die? What about if it was one in 30? And what mm. about if we knew it was going to be you? Would that change your attitude? Yeah. What I don't understand is, why do these people never think on a personal, real-world level? Why are they always thinking about, oh, I am doing this for everyone else. I'm saving the world. I'm... Is it just virtue signaling, or is there something well, the, more the, going on?
1: Well, the simple answer, of course, is that they're not thinking at all. That, mm. uh, that thought has come to them from the TV. And they've interpreted it as if it was their own thought, but it isn't a thought of theirs at all. It's just something which has been programmed into them. So that the answer, the simple answer, is that they're not. The reason why they're not thinking is because they're not thinking. Right? Kind of. The best answer
0: this. is read the TV delusion. Literally, yeah. literally, you've just sold your book. Brilliant, because that's exactly what it is. They're not thinking. They're repeating what the television told them to think. Actually, exactly. inter- what the television yeah. told them they're thinking, because it's not thinking at all, right?
1: Yeah. Let's go back for another couple of quotes from the book, then. So Margaret says, however, what we're not being told is that cancer is not always a very bad thing. Many, not all, of the bad effects are, in my opinion, nocebo-based. This is me speaking now, or actually nocebo-based. Obviously, there are some cancers which are bad, right? But a lot of them, I think the, the negative effects people get are to do with the nocebo. Margaret says, cancer can coexist with a person, not causing any symptoms, not causing any trouble, and often only being discovered after the death of the person concerned. So in my opinion, the idea of cancer has been weaponized. It's being used as an instrument of fear. And of course, using what we should remind ourselves of is that using fear as a tool for achieving a political end is the definition of terrorism. And that's kind of what we're up against here. So going back to Margaret's word again now. So Margaret says that the biggest influences on health are poverty, diet, stress, and overwork. From my point of view, I'd also add how many poisons from Big Pharma you've ingested as an extra thing in that. And Margaret says these factors that she lists are often overlooked in favor of performing the screening program. And the victims get constant letters, texts, phone calls, trying to get people to engage in screening and take untested, unsolicited medication like the conviv vaccine. And this creates a stream of false customers. And no more have we had this in the past few months. I don't know how many calls and texts you get, but I, I had absolutely loads, letters, everything. And I even had to threaten them with the computer misuse, their data protection act rather, to try and get them to stop. And I managed to get rid of some of it, but they still carried on.
0: Oh, data protection. It's not for you, Simon. Data protection is for them. It's so they can share your data. What they did with the data protection act was create loopholes so they can share whatever the hell they want to share. When I say they, I'm talking pretty much government organizations, institutions and their third parties that they agree to outsource their work to. So it was nothing to do with protecting our data. It's to protect theirs. It's not to protect ours.
1: So I've got just a couple of stories about the slippery slope presented to us by Big Pharma. So... My dad, who died uh, a couple of years ago, before he died, he was on all uh, loads of pills and medications from Big Pharma. He started out with one, and then that created side effects for which he needed another one to alleviate the side effects of the first. And he ended up with a rack of pills about 10 bottles long, which were dutifully administered to him by my mother every morning. And even he recognized that they weren't necessary. None of them were necessary. And I've had a similar thing myself. So before you cured me of my asthma, which I'm still very grateful of, by the way, I was taking those inhalers quite a lot. And I ended up with this kind of mark on the back of my throat. And I happened to go to the dentist, and the dentist said, That's cancer. You need to go and get that sorted out. And this is, these are the days before I knew anything about anything. So I went, a stupid day, I went to the doctor and they did a, biopsy so obviously I'm opening myself up for a load of trouble here just like like you were and fortunately it turned out the biopsy came back negative and it turns out this was just a fungal infection caused by the asthma inhalers so of course I went down to the pharmacy and I got myself a bottle of stuff to treat the fungal infection so then I looked down in my hands and in one hand I had an asthma inhaler in the other hand I had the bottle of this fungal stuff So now the queue of pills is getting too long. What would be the next? Another one to treat the fungal thing. And soon I'd be like my dad. So I decided to pack it all in and I'm still alive. So
0: Because we treat symptoms and not causes. And that, in a nutshell, is what so-called modern medicine is. It's a series of, oh, here's some symptoms. Here's some treatment for those symptoms. Unfortunately, the treatments have side effects. And then you end up with more treatments for other so-called symptoms, i.e. the side effects of the first drug. and. Tim's father, who passed away maybe four or five years ago, same deal. He had a huge rack of pills. Uh, <laughs> this to treat that and this to cover the effects of that. Yeah. And Often it was blatant that they would say, oh, this is because of the side effects of that. We're giving you these drugs. Yeah, It's the yeah. same. It's the same over and over again. Like, when are we going to stop this?
1: Yeah. And of course, these screening things and the, like a kind of downward spiral caused by the nocebo effect, I think was the main thing that was to blame for the COVID scandemic. Because what happened, of course, is that healthy people with no symptoms, they get given a test and forced to take a test, either by their employer or to go into some area or shop or whatever it is. And so they're forced to have a test, even though there's nothing wrong with them. And obviously, the test comes back as a false positive, because that's kind of what the test is designed to do. It's designed to tell you you've got COVID, even though there's nothing wrong with you. And that's going to act as a nocebo, isn't it? As soon as that happens... You're going to get a nocebo effect, and that could lead to real symptoms like like we talked about in the last podcast. So then they're going to go to the hospital. Next thing is they're going to be treated by people like lepers, even though there's nothing wrong with them. They're going to end up on, they're going to go into a panic, which might cause breathing problems. Then they're going to be stuck on a ventilator and then they're going to end up in a box. And, you know, this is the sad reality of the world we live in, that these screening things actually causing a scandemic.
0: It's just, I've got to stop saying unbelievable because it's, when you think about it for five minutes using logic and reason, it's so patently obvious. I have a little section here to add. It's from a book called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Now, obviously we're talking about medicine here and medical book and people might say, well, you're just, you know, Margaret McCartney's a GP. She's got an axe to grind. You're quoting things from people with the dog in the race. Well, this is a book about money. It's got nothing to do with medicine, but this stuff jumped out at me. I read it in the last six months. It says here, the Seattle Children's Hospital includes a section on its website to educate parents who may panic at the slightest rise in their child's temperature. Fevers turn on the body's immune system. They help the body fight infection. Normal fevers between 100 and 104 F are good for sick children. Just read that again. Fevers turn on the body's immune system. They help the body fight infection. Normal fevers between 100 degrees and 104 degrees Fahrenheit are good for sick children. This is an American book. I just want to emphasize that. But that's where the science ends and reality takes over. Fever is almost universally seen as a bad thing. They're treated with drugs like Tylenol. Probably pronounced that wrong. T-Y-L-E-N-O-L. I don't take drugs, guys. Sorry, I don't know what it is. It's a drug that reduces fever as quickly as they appear. Despite millions of years of evolution as a defense mechanism, no parent, no patient, few doctors, and certainly no drug company views fever as anything but a misfortune that should be eliminated. These views do not match the known science. One study was blunt. Treatment of fever is common in the ICU setting and likely related to standard dogma rather than evidence-based practice. And that's from J.J. Ray and C.I. Schulman. And the title of the article in the journal is Fever. Suppress or Let It Ride, and that's from the Journal of Thoracic Disease 2015. It goes on to say, Howard Markle, director of the Center for the History of Medicine, once said of fever phobia, these are cultural practices that spread just as widely as the infectious diseases that are behind them. And the guy who wrote the book, Morgan Housel, goes on to say, why does this happen? If fevers are beneficial, why do we fight them so universally? He says, I don't think it's complicated. Fevers hurt and people don't want to hurt. That's it. A doctor's goal is not just to cure disease. It's to cure disease within the confines of what's reasonable and tolerable to the patient. Fevers can have marginal benefits in fighting infection, but they hurt. I would just interject there and say I think fevers have a magnificent benefit, not a marginal benefit in fighting infection. But that's just my opinion. I carry on quoting here from Morgan Housel's book. Morgan Housel says, He says, and I go to the doctor to stop the hurting. I don't care about double blind studies when I'm shivering under a blanket. What a wimp. If you have a pill that can make a fever stop, give it to me now, is what he's saying. It may be rational to want a fever if you have an infection, but it is not reasonable. Well, I would argue that the fever is a wonderful, it's a gift, it's helping you shed, it's helping you get rid of whatever toxins or whatever the problem is. I made the fatal mistake last January so January 2022 of treating a fever, and I was ill for three months, and I didn't ever fully make a hundred percent recovery, and I regret it bitterly because by then I should have known better. It was just a fever, it was nothing, and I treated it, and I should have ridden it out. This year, I had a fever; it lasted less than twelve hours, and it's completely wow. <laughs> The problem that I had is completely gone. I will never ever again treat a fever. A fever is your friend, in my opinion. I'm not a doctor, but I do study myself extremely carefully. I just. I can't believe in a book about money. <laughs> I've yeah, just read. Strange place uh, to have what it. What a
1: bizarre thing, huh?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you raised a few interesting points there. I mean, the first point is that we may have an opinion on what a fever is, and you may have an opinion. I might have an opinion. I'm not really sure, really, what I think about a fever, really. And really, everything we've spoken about in here, they're just ideas, they're just our opinions. So there's no, you know, we're not telling anyone what the truth is or what's true or false. We're just, Listing our opinions and asking people to think about them for themselves. But if you take the idea of a fever, if you imagine that the body is engaged in some activity and sorting itself out internally or something, then it is reasonable to expect that you'd see an elevation of temperature associated with that. So it's increased chemical activity going on. So the idea that a fever could be good for you, I must say, I'm undecided, but it isn't completely contradictory to common sense. In fact, there's a lot of factors which mean it's in line with common sense. And the other thing to say is, as I've said, we've stated our opinions and they're, they're nothing more than that. But what people need to realize is the official line from big pharma and the medical profession, those are nothing but opinions either. Yep. So it's a tendency for us to think that authority provides us with an answer.
0: And they're bought and paid for opinions. Exactly. They're bought and paid for as well, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. We're not. yeah. Yep. So I, I was thinking about, the whole testing with the COVID thing and I was thinking that I think the people who are testing divide broadly into five groups and you may better think of small Sarah. the first one was those who are living in fear and obviously it's nice to blame someone for their own fear but I don't think in every case the fear is their own fault I think it's been fueled and fanned by all the stuff we've talked about so I think they're kind of victims to some extent so I don't want to be too negative about Fearful people who keep getting tested because, you know, that they've suffered through the same psychological trauma as everyone else. The, the next category is people with Munchausens. So these are people who they want to pretend they've got something wrong with them because that's kind of what they do. Or Munchausens by proxy, of course, when they get their kid tested and they want to pre- pretend there's something wrong with the kid, even though they probably know there isn't. The third group are those who are incentivized by a paid day off work or a day off school. I think that probably counted for a lot of people. And then moving on, virtue signals. Uh, sorry, virtue signalers, I should have said. And these people are attention seekers. And attention seeking is an inadequacy-based psychological disorder. So th- these are people who've got a psychological disorder, even though it's a mild one. And then last of all, there are people who have no meaning in their lives or no structure to their time. And they're glad of a religion, no matter what it is, to fill it. And the idea of um, structuring one's time is an idea that's put forward by the transactional psychologist, which we mentioned in our book a little bit, probably too much of a big topic to go into here, but possibly a future podcast. For, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for So sure. I, I dare say there might be other people as well, but a lot of these people might have problems themselves. But I think, as I say, I think they've been fueled by the media and the psychological warfare that they find themselves in. I think there is another group. i think,
0: not sure how significant this group is, but it's a group that winds me up. So on on that note, in that regard, I'll, I'll include it. It's a group of people who think they are so important and that their businesses are so vital to save the world that they will go along with taking any old test or faking any old test so that they can get to America to do a An important business deal. Stuff the fact that it's immoral. Stuff the fact that it breaches the Nuremberg Code. Stuff everybody else. But me, 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 i me, and my business and my money, 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 money means that I'm going to go along to get along. Um, I despise that group. Probably The virtue signaler is a toss-up between them and the virtue signalers. Virtue signalers are always going to virtue signal. But the people who go along to get along, I think they make me more mad because they know it's fake, they know it's a fraud, and they go along with it because of themselves and their self-interest. And that that group of people are very annoying because they're actually more influential than most of the other groups because most of them have Agreed. means. If you're flying yeah. to America twice a month, you have some sort of means. You're bi- you could make such you know, Imagine if all of those transat, the regular transat people, actually all turned around and said, actually, love, we're not wearing masks. Stuff your journey to the States. We're not going. All of us here, us 40, that are paying a fortune to sit in business class or whatever, we're not going. So you can either scrap your crappy rule and we'll take our money away or you can change it. For me, I think they annoy me even more than the signalers. I think I have to give the award to them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's a difficult one, isn't it? But yeah. It's, it's, close, certain, it's close, but. Certainly a weird world we find ourselves in. I mean, the fact of the matter is they, those convict tests were inaccurate. They didn't do the job. There's no scientific way by which they could have ever worked. And the idea was to create customers and manipulate people into accepting a false agenda. They, you know, that's the sad reality of it in summary hundred percent, hundred percent. Is there anything else that you would like to Interesting off? topic. That about wraps it up. I must say that this topic, I didn't think it was going to be as big and all encompassing as it was when I started to look into it a few days ago. And certainly seems to be a lot of facets to it, which I wasn't aware of. So it's been quite interesting for me looking into something I didn't previously know anything about.
0: My personal experience, which I'd say I, you didn't know about that before we recorded this. I saved it because I, guessed what you might pick out of the patient paradox to talk about, because it's the same things that I found fascinating. But my personal experience, plus reading that book, changed my mind about all of medicine or so-called medicine forever. I now don't do any, and I'm not suggesting anyone else should copy. This is just me and my personal opinion. I'm not a doctor, thankfully. I don't take part in any so-called preventative medicine. I do not take part in any screenings and won't be doing ever again. I've read a lot more books since. And the more I read, the more I think, Oh, thank goodness that happened to me. And thank goodness I decided to research it. I'm grateful now because I could have been in some serious trouble. Maybe I'd have been one of those quote unquote awake truthers who went and got the jab had I not been through this sort of awakening to big pharma. Yeah. I'm actually genuinely grateful. I think you coined, well, you perhaps didn't coin the phrase, but I first heard the phrase pharma. We are entering the era of pharma fascism from yourself. Yeah. And (laughs) that stuck with me for a all that time, several years now, maybe three three years ago, I think I heard that from you. It was right at the start of the scandemic in March 2020. And yeah, you said the age of pharma fascism is upon us. And I am so grateful that my previous experiences, plus the background reading I'd done, had helped sort of pre-inform me, kind of give me a baseline to judge what was going on around me at the time yeah, of, of 2020. Yeah, that's a
1: good point. I mean, on a positive note, a lot of people say, and I think I agree with this to a large extent, is that the events of the past two or three years I've done an awful lot to wake people up and many, many, I mean, people like you and me were awake before to some extent, probably more so now as we've already discussed, but for many people, this was their big awakening. And obviously we've been through a lot with like forced imprisonment, lockdowns, threatened with fake drugs and whatever. But then again, we've also learned quite a lot. And the question is, would you, if you could wind back that three years and, Take away all that aggro, but also take away what you've learned. Would you do that? I, I think probably not myself. I've never but...
0: traded in a million years. I've learned so much. I've met the best people in the world, and I really mean that. And I'm sure there'll be more of those to come as well as time goes by. I definitely wouldn't trade it. It's been horrible. I felt like I lost everything, but then I gained so much in the aftermath of COVID 1984. And I'm really grateful that the lessons. Some of the lessons were really hard and really difficult, and I mean that. But my God, it was worth it. I'm grateful for what's happened. I call COVID 1984, the people who are sort of newly awakening, I call it their 9-11. That's yeah. their 9-11 moment because that's kind of the first major thing that really kicked me off thinking that things were seriously not the way we we're being told they were. Right, so yeah. yeah, I view this as like a... Interestingly, though, some of those people who've just woken up to COVID, they seem to have fallen right down to the bottom of the rabbit hole really quickly. Like for me, I was much slower. I was going into different areas. Things were happening more slowly, but the people who've woken up recently are like, they're down to adrenochrome and all sorts. They have fallen like straight in and they're into all of it. Is that your experience or if you seen something Yeah, different? a
1: lot of people seem to have taken a very deep dive very quickly. And one of the problems with that is that you end up believing lots of false narratives, which I think are sewn into the truth community, false ideas sewn into the truth community in order to d- distract us from the truth. And sadly, a lot of those people who've had that rude awakening have fallen for a lot of those things. And I think it's a little bit sad. I think a lot of people need to kind of take a step back and try and give themselves time to think because there's all manner of things on Facebook and social media and not all of them are produced by truthers. A lot of them are produced basically by the security services and they're there to, to flummox people into going down the wrong path. I think it's a kind of, Lesson for us all, really, because I've been fooled by some of them in the past as well. So I'm not trying to claim I'm squeaky clean and immune to them or anything. We all have, right? For sure, yeah. But, and the other thing I'd like to say is that real knowledge, real spiritual knowledge and awareness doesn't come without pain. If you're learning knowledge and it's painless, then what that means that's just book knowledge. It's not real knowledge that is in the kind of kernel of your being, it's just book knowledge that you're repeating.
0: I teach this in a much crueler and more simplistic fashion. I say, if you do not know your times tables perfectly to mastery speeds, then you're not working hard enough. You don't know anything. I'm not interested in teaching you. No, I'm joking. I'm really strict on it. I say, look, if it's not hurting, it's not working. If the bar ain't bending, you're just pretending, as they say in the gym when they're deadlifting. If the bar ain't bending, (laughs) you're just pretending. No, you've got to work. You've got to work hard. You've got to be rigorous. You have to use drill. You have to be disciplined. You have to work hard. And that's true of everything. So if you're just sat there watching so-called truther documentaries, it's probably not really hard enough work. If you haven't read some boring government documents yourself, I'm not saying all of them, that's not possible. But if you haven't dug into some things deeply enough for yourself, then you're not really doing it. You're kind of an armchair. It's like being an armchair sports fan, being an armchair football fan. Like, Don't do that. Be a real fan. Be there. Get involved. Go search things and seek things out for yourself, right?
1: When I, when I first got into this, so it must be like more than 10 years ago now, I used to get really irritated. You'd see a YouTube thing or read a book, a truther a book or whatever, and it would just be a load of questions and no answers. And I'd be livid. I'd think, why the hell can't they just tell me the answer? And really not. I've read this whole book and not a single answer has come out of it. It's just a load of questions, more questions than I had to start with. But then you know, it took me a long time to realize that if you just, Tell the answers well. First of all, the person hasn't put the effort in. Secondly, you might not actually know the answer, right? But you, all you know is that the main, the mainstream narrative is wrong. You don't necessarily know what the truth is, and the questioning is the is the big part of it. And that would be destroyed if someone just told you what their answers were, even if they, those answers happen to be true, which they probably won't be.
0: So what we're saying is they knew more than we did when we read the book.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We have to hold space in our minds, don't we? That people are further on than we are in our journey. There are people who are behind and there are people who are ahead. And those people who seem to be ahead might not necessarily be and vice versa, but it's everyone's on their own journey and it's do your own homework, isn't it, really, I think.
1: Yeah, and that's why I like our podcast because we're not telling anyone what to think. We're just inviting people to think. And I think that's the best thing we can do, really. The best service we can do to others is to invite them to think.
0: Yeah, read, 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 encourage them to read and think as much as you can. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Simon. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining me once again. And that's Simon Day, the co-author of The TV Delusion, a marvellous book, The TV Delusion. And for those of you who are interested in my mathematics, uh, I was going to say mathematics genius. It sounds very arrogant. I am not a mathematics genius, but I am genius at how to teach mathematics to students. So if you want to come learn that, I will be available on Saturday, the 11th of February, Saturday, the 11th of Feb, half past nine till four, and I am teaching mathematics education. So what I'm going to do, I might improve your maths a bit, but what I'm going to do is improve how you help your son and daughter to become competent and confident in mathematics. It's a full-day workshop, Saturday, the 11th of Feb, 9.30 till 4. Um, the last one went down a bomb, so I really, really hope to see you guys there. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you again to Joanna van der Leer for allowing us to crib off her research. and. um <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to add before leaving us or how we can get a copy of your book, anything like that?
1: that? Same way as before, really. You can either go to Amazon if you want, or you can mail Joanna and she'll send you a copy. The link to so
0: that will be in the description. I will add Joanna's email address for those who want to not give their money to evil Amazon.
1: Yeah, I'd just like to say thanks once again for having me on, Sarah. It's been an absolute blast, this one. I think it went really well. And looking forward to the next one. Same here. Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit saraplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination.